Miss Appleby. Yes. Uh, uh, Miss Appleby, the uh, scouts here are getting a little bit out of hand. Maybe you should talk to them. Oh, of course. They're just kind of excited about seeing Debbie Harry. Well, I don't blame them, but I do worry about them getting hurt. There's some dangerous areas around here. Oh, don't worry about that. I'll just give them a little safety talk. Boys, boys, come here. Is everybody here? Uh, um, I don't see Norman. Oh, I saw him going upstairs. Huh? Hi-ho, and welcome again to A Feat of Lunatic Daring, the most sensational, inspirational, celebrational, muppetational podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. My name is Chad. I'm here with my co-host, Nick Jackson. Nick, what do you hear? What do you say? I hear that it's Halloween weekend, and I say that I'm going to be extra antisocial as a result. I, I, don't, I have no choice but to be social. I have children. Yeah. So we'll be going out. My oldest daughter is a vampire, and my youngest is uh, Anna from Frozen 2. <laughs> and um, they're they're excited. They have parties this weekend, and uh, then uh, they're actually off on Halloween, which I don't know if they're off for Halloween or if it's a student. My, here's my guess. It's like a teacher work day, but they don't want to put up with the kids that day, so they schedule it on Halloween. I mean, that's clever if they do. But uh, yeah, it's almost Halloween. You're not a big Halloween fan? Uh, I was when I was a kid. If I had kids, I'd probably be a Halloween fan. But like in the interim in between, it's it's another day. See, I like fall and I like like dark and spooky stuff, but I'm I'm not big into the costume part. Mm. At least as an adult. I stopped dressing up for Halloween when I was like 13. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I never and as an adult, I never really enjoyed dressing up. Uh, this is a feat of lunatic daring. We're a podcast about Jim Henson and the Muppets. Before we get started, uh, we'd like to ask you to check us out on social media at Lunatic Daring on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Although today is the day that Elon Musk officially took over Twitter, so it's possible we won't be on Twitter anymore. That actually went through. Yeah. Hmm. And lunaticdaring.com, where you can find all of our episodes, our watch list, and our bibliography. We are currently going through The Muppet Show Season 5. That is five. One, two, three, four, five. Two episodes at a time. Uh, a couple of good ones tonight. Yeah. I, I thought. Uh, we, we've definitely got some shiny spots from each episode. But we've been rambling enough, so let's get started. Let's get started. You big Blondie fan? Uh, I am an incidental Blondie fan. Blondie is part of like a melange of things from the eighties that I listen to in like conjunction. Just, just part of the sounds of the eighties not necessarily mm-hmm. something you would go put on a Blondie record, but mm-hmm. that you would hear as part of the tapestry that is the 1980s. Mm-hmm. Angela Trimble. What? Was born July 1st, 1945 in Miami, Florida. When she was three months old, she was adopted by Catherine and Richard Harry who renamed her Deborah Ann Harry. She described herself as a tomboy, spending much of her childhood off playing in the woods. She attended Hawthorne High School in New Jersey and then Centenary College in the same state. In the late 60s, she moved to New York, where she worked as a secretary, a waitress, a go-go dancer, and a playboy bunny. Debbie started her musical career as a backup singer for the folk group The Wind in the Willows, who did release an album. In 73, she joined a group called The Stilettos. She started dating the band's guitarist, Chris Stein, and they'd be together for 14 years. In 74, the band changed its name to Blondie, based on the catcalls Debbie was getting after bleaching her hair. The band played the famous CBGB club, as well as Max's Kansas City, which was a club that she had once served uh, tables at. Due to her look and attitude, Harry quickly became an icon in the punk scene. Blondie released their first album in 1976, but it was their third record, Parallel Lines, released two years later, that broke them through to the mainstream in both the U.S. and in the U.K.
More albums came, and with them, more big singles. Call Me was from the American uh, Gigolo soundtrack with Richard Gere. The Tide is High was a cover of a Rocksteady classic from the band The Paragons. And Atomic was a number one hit in the United Kingdom. And then there was Rapture. Fab Five Freddy told me everybody's side. DJ spinning, I said, my, my. Flash is fast, flash is cool. Francois, c'est pas. Flash ain't no do. And don't stop. Shoot a shot. Go out to the parking lot. And get in your car and drive real far. And drive all night. And then you see a light. And it comes right down and lands on the ground. Debbie had made friends with the with then graffiti artist and hip hop enthusiast Fab Five Freddy, who introduced Harry to New York hip hop. Through Freddy, she met the legendary Grandmaster Flash, who she wanted to appear in the video for The Rapture. He's he's name checked in the song, but his label wouldn't allow it. So instead, Flash was played by artist Jean-Michel Basquiat in the music video. <laughs> Rapture became the first hip-hop track, if, you, if one can call it that, to reach number one on the Billboard charts. During this time, she also became friends with Andy Warhol, who painted her many times. Uh, she, in 1980, she did The Muppet Show, where she would sing two Blondie songs, as we'll talk about tonight. Harry's first solo album came out in 1981 with album art by artist H.R. Geiger. Or sorry, H.R. Geiger? Right? H.R. Geiger. That is amazing. Who also directed the music video for Backfired, the first single. Backfired. My man, your plan. Backfired in your face. You came into my life to test me. Your diplomatic drag depressed me. The glitter in your eyes undressed me. The album sold reasonably well, but didn't chart nearly as high as her Blondie work did. Um, Blondie released their sixth album, The Hunter, in 82, but it flopped and the tour was canceled due to low ticket sales. Around this time, Stein developed a rare autoimmune disease. This and other other factors led to Blondie dissolving. After the split, Harry took some time to take care of Stein throughout, through his medical issues. She started acting with her first major role being in David Cronenberg's body horror film Videodrome in 1983, for which she earned great acclaim. She released more singles and albums, but could never reach Blondie levels of success with them. She starred in John Waters' film Hairspray in 1988, and around that time changed her professional name from Debbie to Deborah. Her 1989 album, Deaf, Dumb, and Blonde, had some success with the track Kiss It Better making the top 15 on the U.S. modern rock charts. More albums came and went. She did a handful of songs for movies, including Prelude to a Kiss and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Next Generation. She worked with the Talking Heads. Was uh, in, She was in the directorial debut of Indiana Jones 5, Helmer James Mangold, a great little film called Heavy with Liv Tyler and Pruitt Taylor Vince. Great movie. Blondie got back together and uh, went back to making records. And Debbie kept making solo records too. Um, they ended up touring with Cyndi Lauper, sang on a Fall Out Boy song, made an appearance with Arcade Fire at Coachella in 2014. The latest Blondie album, Pollinator, their 11th, came out in 2017, and it debuted at number four in the UK. Two years later, she released a memoir. After her and Stein broke up, but they both got sober from drug abuse and remained friends. Harry would be the godmother of Stein's two daughters later on. Didn't find much on her personal life after that. She never married, and she has no children. She did claim that she escaped from serial killer Ted Bundy one night in New York City. But the police aren't sure because Bundy was believed to be in Florida at the time. She lives part-time in New York City and part-time in Jersey with her dogs. She is 77. Debbie Harry is 77. It's really hard for me to imagine. She's older than my mom. The Muppet Show, episode number 509 with special guest star Debbie Harry, uh, produced August 1980, debuted early 1981. This episode has a cultural content warning. We're going to talk about it. I'm not quite sure why. It's a couple of possible things, but I looked online and nobody online is sure either. Yeah, there's also a specific smoking warning, which have we received those on other episodes? Yeah, we did. We have. Yeah, we always get a smoking warning. Mm-hmm. Um, we got one last time, last week with Senior Wences. Mm-hmm. So let's see if we can find the cultural content 
problem as we go along here. We have our cold open and uh, Pops, Debbie comes in. Should we address this now that it looks like Debbie Harry's coked up through the whole episode? Yeah, no. Like as soon as you see her, she's, it seems like she's doing a Jack Nicholson impression. She's got the glasses and like that slight toothy smile and she's a little out of it. Um, She's a little out of it. But she is also super game. Like this is just a party for her. It feels like, I guess at that point I don't mind it as much. No, it doesn't bother me. We can't prove anything. I'm just saying it looks like she's, she appears to be on some sort of substance during this episode. Hmm. Pops can't remember what uh, rock group that Debbie belongs to. Debbie Harry. That's right. You sing with that rock group. uh... Blondie. Hey. Blondie. That's the name of the group. Blondie. Yes. Dumb name for a group. If I were you, I'd have called it something different. If you were me, you would have called it Baldy. But then she gives like this laugh to the camera and you're like, oh, you're stoned. Yeah. <laughs> she gives this little laugh to the camera and you're like, okay, all right, let's do this. We have our Muppet Show theme. Gonzo plays by ear, literally. I thought that was a clever joke. So then Kermit comes out to announce that Debbie is the guest star on tonight's show. And then Robin, that little shit Robin comes out. So usually I wouldn't say that Robin's a little shit, but in this moment in particular, I would have words with my nephew. So he comes out and he asks Kermit if it's okay that his scout troop, his frog scout troop, comes to the show one day. Kermit's like, yeah, we can arrange that. They can come to the show one day. And he goes, great, guys. Kermit said we could come. And all of a sudden we have all these frogs, these frog scouts. And they are here because they want to see Debbie Harry. They're red-blooded American frogs, and they want to see the biggest rock star in the world. Robin kind of kind of blindsides him here. He absolutely does. He knew exactly what he was doing, too. He's been taking lessons from Scooter. So then uh, Kermit introduces our opening number, and we get Wayne. Wayne's back. Did Wayne ever really leave? He never really left, but he hasn't had a musical number in forever. And remember on the This Is Your Life thing where they came out and talked about how they got fired? And uh, Wayne is in front of the Notre Dame Cathedral, Notre Dame, I guess I should say, in uh, in Paris. And um, he's not really in Paris. And he's singing a song called For Me and My Gal. And uh, he starts singing the song. But eventually the, the, the camera and the, the sketch gets bored of him, basically. And the camera floats up to the top of the cathedral, where we meet a new character named Mulch, who is... Um, this is where I think maybe, 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 maybe we get our cultural content warning because Mulch is a humpback. He's playing the hunchback in Notre Dame. Right. He's, he's, he's also like the way that his, he's colored and everything else. He looks like a boxy illustration. Like this is something that you would see in heavy traffic or he is as a Muppet. He's in weird, but stark contrast to the rest of the Muppets because of how bright he is. Well, we're going to see him again too. Mm. He's going to come back and other stuff, but Mulch I'm just wondering if the depiction of Mulch, who is playing the Hunchback of Notre Dame, and he's singing with a gargoyle, and they change the lyrics to the song from "Me and My Girl" to "Me and My Gargoyle," um, is is the joke here? And they, 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 they him and this gargoyle sing to each other. Um, it's it's cute. I, I have no problem with the number. I'm wondering if their the cultural content warning has to do with their depiction of someone who's disabled. Maybe. It's all I can come up with. <laughs> I'm trying to remember everything that popped up, or that's I'm getting ahead of myself. But in Debbie's first number, I'm wonder I'm trying to remember everything that popped out of those doors because I feel like one of them might have also satisfied that, but I can't remember. Yeah, I I, I don't know. I, it's this is this is the toughest one to crack. I, like I said, I checked online. No one can agree hmm. as to why there's a warning on this episode. Some people think that there's no reason whatsoever. I I'm I'm leaning towards mulch and its depiction of someone who's disabled hmm. but that's just me what'd you think of the number though I thought it was alright like it didn't blow me away but I was more it didn't pull me out of it I was more intrigued by mulch's design because mulch he's the first Muppet that we've seen in a while that is not another whatnot nor is he something that is distinctly animalistic like no, Bo is still kind of a whatnot right he's he's evolved into something else since there seems like there was a lot more care put into Mulch's character a little bit. He's played by Jerry Nelson, by the way. Well, yeah, but just the design of it. It's yeah. The design on him is really cool. He's this big hulking blue hunchback of Notre Dame looking character. A little bit of hunchback, a little bit of Igor. Mm-hmm. Let's say from, from Frankenstein. And then the number at the end of the number is ruined by the frog scouts. The frog scouts have no boundaries. 
They have no respect for personal space. They do this thing that irks me in fiction and not in fiction, uh, which I'm going to call the Streisand, where through sheer pluck and a certain lack of self-awareness, I'm going to force myself into the scene and everything is going to mold around it to be fine. Which, if this was the first time we'd seen Robin, it would have probably irked me a lot more. Or they're just excited kids. Yeah. I also wasn't ready for Mrs. Appleby. Mulch tells Kermit he should probably get a hold of the... uh, Well, first, Mulch talks about his children. Mine are different. Mm, I suppose they are. They're at the museum today. Mm -hmm. Nice. Visiting the museum? Not visiting. On exhibit. They're weird, but worth seeing. But what's funnier is the gargoyle comes up and says, they're weird, but worth seeing. Which I thought was really funny. So then the Frog Scouts are all there and they're being annoying. And Kermit's like, did you have an adult with you? And they're like, yeah. And they bring out Mrs. Appleby, who was an elderly frog woman, who is the leader of their the Frog Scouts. Why were you put off by Mrs. Appleby? Oh, I hope this doesn't give the podcast a cultural content warning. She made me think of David Lopan. I don't know who that is. From Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, Oh, okay. Yeah. I wasn't like, it it wasn't quite nightmare fuel, but there was this weird sort of uncanny valley effect, which even that doesn't properly address it because it's not like she was close to the way that his character was presented in that movie, especially when he was framed as an older character. It is Muppet-like. But I just, like, I wasn't expecting to see the, the wispy eyebrow hair or any of the other stuff. Yeah, she, she's just there. She's the, she's the scoutmaster. And, and Kermit says, you know, you got to be careful. You know, tell them to be careful. This is a working theater. There's a lot going on. And she goes, I'll give them a little safety, safety check. And she, she calls them all together, but they're missing one named Norman. They're like, where's Norman? Where did Norman go? And, and then... The dressing room door up top opens and you hear animal or an animal comes out and throws Norman over the railing <laughs> in a great shot of Norman just f- flying through the air. That's right. Even kids aren't safe on the Muppet show. Animal tosses him from the balcony or from the balcony, tosses him from the second floor. He lands and they all gather around him like Norman, Norman, wake up. It's really bleak. I'm like, did, he, did the animal kill that frog? It's probably just a concussion. We have a Muppet news flash. Uh, the newsman comes in and reports that famous French clothing designer David Lazour, which is a play on David Laser, uh, was arrested uh, for designing clothes that can suddenly turn into chickens. And then the newsman's suit turns into uh, it turns into chickens. To be fair, this one this was is- bizarre. Absolutely Gonzo's wet dream. <laughs> it, it is. If he could wear his chickens. Right. If they could just spontaneously appear on him. Like, you don't even have time for the Zoom. It's just. We get Debbie's first number. Um, she has a whatnot band um, who it sometimes look kind of new wavy, sometimes look kind of punkish. And uh, she sings One Way or Another, which is a big blondie hit. Hey, this ain't my normal band. She sings it pretty straight. Yeah. Um, she's she looks a little manic. Yeah, I was going to say we've we've mentioned that she might have been uh, influenced somewhat, by something. Yeah, influenced by something, and that is more present here than it was in the opening with Pop. Um, but yeah. the way that she plays this, the way that she's she's doing this, she's clearly having a good time, and I think she's happy to be there. But it's also one of those things where it doesn't feel like she's all there. And in terms of the cultural content warning. Part of me vaguely remembers something popping through one of those windows or doors, but I couldn't tell you what it is. It's just like sharks, the the demons, the little devil characters that we've seen before. Mm-hmm. Tiger, Timmy Monster, the Frog Scouts, and then and, and then the the kind of the storyline of the song is that she's being stalked by Mulch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I I enjoyed this a lot, but I enjoyed the song and I enjoy her. But it was a fairly manic performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and. But also, like, she's, I don't know, she's, 
she's just kind of standing up there on her own singing, and maybe she's not used to that. I don't know. It, it's it's an unnatural situation for a performer, you know? Mm-hmm. So maybe. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, she was... Uh, she was definitely, I don't know, it felt like she was in two places at once. That is a good way to put that. I don't think I could say that it's bad, and it's not even like a, a damning it with false praise, Praise it's not bad sort of thing. It's just, it does feel kind of disconnected. So we go backstage after the number. Kermit kind of reads Mulch the Riot Act for invading the um, the number, because apparently that wasn't part of the, that wasn't planned. But he said all he was trying to do was get Debbie's autograph, and it worked. And then Debbie goes up to her room. <laughs> And finds the goddamn Frog Scouts have taken over her dressing room. But they're all dressed in punk clothes (laughs) and hair and makeup. And they're trying to earn their punk merit badges. Nothing like a bunch of squares trying to talk about punk. But here we are. And uh, she she decides that the way to make them punk is to teach them how to pogo. I, I vaguely remember from the Brian J. Jones biography, there was mention of Brian Henson having a crush on Debbie Harry and that being a part of her being pulled onto the show. So I don't, yes, I think that Jim playing Kermit in this scene was genuine. <laughs> I I also think though, though Robin is then Brian. Absolutely could be the case. Definitely a little correlation there. I was in high school and my father knew that Debbie Harry was like the biggest thing in the world to me. And he booked her to be on the Muppet show during a vacation week from school. And he didn't tell me. We went out to dinner the night before shooting and they made me sit next to Debbie Harry, this fancy restaurant. And I just remember this whole dinner, I was just endlessly sweating. And all I knew was that I was aware of Debbie Harry sitting on this side of me. I don't think I ever said a word to her. I don't think I ever looked at her. But she did a great episode. She's a great performer. And she's a lovely lady. Hmm. And uh, so they, they practice their pogo a little bit, which is the official official mating dance of the punk, I guess. And then uh, Kermit comes in to figure out, to, to try to figure out what all this what all the noise is about because <laughs> he's an old man apparently now. <laughs> and he comes in to complain about the noise. And uh, Robin explains that they wanted to come in and tell Debbie that they think she's a real punk. And Kermit's very upset by that because he thinks they're offending the guest star. And she assures them that they are not offending her. Our UK spot is a little girl singing a song called Forgiven, which is a song about a, a little girl who loses her beetle. It's from an A.A. Milne poem. Nightmare Fuel, that beetle is terrifying. You, you didn't like the beetle? I didn't like the beetle at all. It's like somewhere between the two Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis movies in that it is both something out of the fly and also something out of Earth Girls Are Easy. And I'm talking specifically about the segment in Earth Girls Easy where Gina Davis has the nightmare sec. Uh, the nightmare segment about having Jeff Goldblum's alien baby. Like there's something about that thing that is just super disconcerting, especially as it's buzzing around in the background. I'm like 90% sure that it's about to kill the little girl for like half of it. The beetle is disturbing. I thought the song was cute though, but it it is a, it is a fairly disturbing looking creature. It would looks more, it would be more in home and Coosbane. Yeah, absolutely. So Kermit comes into Debbie's dressing room and in this, this is like, uh, he's got this planned out. He comes in with his banjo and uh, it turns out that Debbie really wants to sing a, a rainbow song tonight, a song about rainbows. So I've seen this, this segment of this episode before, and this is honestly one of my favorite performances of this song. And as we've discussed Debbie's relative sobriety for the rest of the episode, it doesn't click in here. Like it, this performance feels different from the one. And I, maybe it's just that it's a slower song. Yeah. But, different from the ones that we get for one way or another or for for call me later in the episode why are there so many songs about rainbows and what's on the other side rainbows are visions but only illusions rainbows I really still really really like this performance of this song yeah so 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 debbie has sent a list ahead of time of some rainbow songs they could sing but uh kermit reminds her that there's another rainbow song that 
that they could sing. And she goes, what's that? And he goes, my rainbow song. Very pitiful Kermit. He just wants to relate to the kids slash his nephew slash his son. Slash his guest star. Yeah, exactly. Um, and Debbie and Kermit sing the rainbow connection together. It's it's one of the only times that we mentioned that, like, you know, there was there was uh, in um, God, what was the episode where Piggy wanted to sing never again, never before, never again. Uh, they reference the movie in that episode and then they reference the movie here but they don't reference the movie very often someday we'll find it the rainbow connection the lovers the dreamers and me We get a short but sweet pigs in space. A meteor punches a hole in the side of the swine trek. And air is rushing out. You can, it's so funny. You can see the before the hole blows up, you can see the hole. You can see mm-hmm. where they puttied over it um, to where they scored it to make it so it would blast out when they when they fired off the explosion. I will say sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle made me laugh much harder than it should have. <laughs> so like Link sitting there, sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle. It's so dumb. It's so very, very dumb. So amazing. Uh, so they so they blast the hole in the side and they got to find something to plug it with. And Piggy's like, I don't care. Just find some way to plug it. And so Link pushes Piggy's face into the hole. They just tried to kill Miss Piggy. They, <laughs> they, sh- really they shoved her face into a vacuum. <laughs> to plug it up. And they, they comment that it's lucky that it's snout sized, a snout sized hole. So Piggy's got her face stuck. Yeah. In the vacuum of space. And uh, and she tells them if she, they don't get her out of here, she's going to kill them. And so they sprinkle some pepper on her nose to make her sneeze with, yeah, a little sprinkle, sprinkle, sprinkle to remove her from the thing. But the problem is now she's not plugging the hole anymore and it's still sucking air out of the swine trek and it gets a hold of Link and bam, now Link's nose is stuck in the hole. And uh, they seem satisfied to keep, leave it that way. Strange Pork's like, good job, Link, you saved the ship. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just love that they're like they're both both Piggy and uh and Strange Pork are like that's a suitable f- fix. We'll, we can Some, leave that there. Something about this one in particular too. This is one of the tighter like I I like Pigs in Space generally speaking, but this is one of the tighter Pigs in Spaces. It's like there's nothing rambling, there's no it is literally problem solution alternate solution go. And it it's not like it's better for having been rushed through but it does feel very very effective and efficient for how quickly it, it establishes and solves the problem backstage mrs appleby makes a play to get this get the kids on stage she uh she says that that they should go out she wants the kids to go on stage and demonstrate their what do we call it they're going for merit and i've i've got notes on that performance when we get to it because it takes me it made me think of two very different things that simultaneously should and should never ever actually be juxtaposed but we'll get to that in a second. She convinces Kermit. Well, she tries to convince Kermit to let the scouts go out and kind of show off how they, uh, their cadence, right? They're, 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 they're basically like their, their camp songs and stuff that they sing and, and they're marching. Kermit says, nope, we only let professionals go out on stage. Kermit, it's disaster time. Huh? You're going to have to cancel my wrestling match with Quango, the wild mountain gorilla. <laughs> but Why? He just called from his limo and stuck in traffic. <laughs> Sorry. That was a professional. So might this have been the, I don't know why it would be. Quango, the wild mountain, wild mountain gorilla. He's been on before. He has. I don't know. Like I said, it's of all of them. It's the, I'm sure it's here, but of all of them, it's the most vague to me. Yeah. Of why. On first viewing, I uh, first viewing, I didn't even see the content warning. It didn't even occur to me. So Kermit says, well, I guess since the wrestling match isn't going to happen, you guys can go on stage. So then Kermit comes out and introduces um, the precision drill team from the Okefenokee Pack 12 of the Frog Scouts of America. And the scouts go through and, and do a bunch of drills. Like the first thing I thought was, especially because our gorilla comes in ready for violence, that this is going to turn into that scene from episode three, which I would have been fine with, especially since these <laughs> kids were like just sort of there. But the other thing is, especially as a military brat that grew up in the 90s, I saw Major Pain a number of times. And this time with the Damon Wayans film Major Pain. Yes, that one. 
Okay. And the the climax resolution takes place at a field day where all of the soldiers that he, or the young JROTC guys that he's been training are supposed to give this performance at a field day. And I, it just, it follows the same sort of call and response thing that they're doing. It's just missing the weird Michael Jackson breakdown that the little kid does. Hayden Christensen and Major Payne should not exist in the same Thought? thing. Like it's, it was weird. I short circuited a little bit, but I couldn't unsee it. <laughs> you went on quite a ride for this number. This, this like 20 seconds. The frog scouts are, uh, are interrupted by Quango, the wild mountain gorilla who's looking for Gonzo. He doesn't do anything violent to them. He just is looking for Gonzo. Then we get our, our closing number where Debbie sings. Call me now. Call me is from the, um, Richard Gere movie, American gigolo. It's, written from the point of view of a male escort. I wrote down maybe the cultural content warning is they were upset about the Muppet Show's depiction of punks, but I don't think punks are a protected class. But uh, yeah, what'd you think of the final number? You still think she was kind of zoinked out? A little bit, but she's also wearing shards of the Dark Crystal. Like I, <laughs> those like weird glass crystals that are. It, she looks like she's dressed up a little bit like a Skeksis, which I'm a hundred percent on board with. This this episode's just sort of got me all over the place. But I thought it was fine, like as a performance number. The Muppets that they had playing as the punks in the band were clearly having a great time. I don't think we've seen close-ups like this on on performances before where they're looking directly into the camera. Not 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 quite like this, no. No. I think they were trying to shoot them like music videos. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I enjoyed it. <laughs> So uh, we get to the end and Debbie comes out and she's dressed in a Frog Scout uh, uniform. She's been made an honorary Frog Scout. Then uh, uh, Mrs. Appleby comes down to shake Kermit down. She says she's basically saying, where's our money? Frog better have my money. He wants the kids. She wants the kids to get paid. That's bad on her because all that means is that they have to cut their parts out of the. which to be fair, they've worked their way into so much of this episode. But if she as their agent didn't secure a contract before they went on to perform that's on her yeah i at that point kermit could just thank them for volunteering and congratulate them on their merit badges i was looking forward to this one and it like it didn't blow me away but it was good yeah i think it it sort of like played down the middle a little bit i wasn't disappointed in the episode but it didn't when i found out that we were going to have like debbie harry and someone named jean pierre on paul i assumed that you were lucky the lucky one this week because you had debbie harry because she's Still, year decades later, she's a household name, more or less. Yeah, she's awesome. But I'm also pleased to say that I was wrong. Well, let's get to that. Jean-Pierre Rampal, born January 7th, 1922, to André and Joseph Rampal. His father was also a flautist. He began playing... Huh. At, yeah. He began playing at 12 years old. He studied the Altes method at the Conservatoire... Also, a lot of these words are going to be in French. I don't speak French. I apologize to anyone listening that does speak French or know about flutes or John or Jean Pierre Rampal. Um, I'm also not a classically trained musician. Let's just get that out of the way now. I think we know that. He won first prize in his school's annual flute competition at age 16 in 1937. It was the same year school's as school's annual flute competition. It's at a conservatory or excuse me, oh, conservatoire. Okay. Okay, conservatory. All right. I was like, I was like, we went to very different schools, but turns out we did go to very different schools. <laughs> that same year was his first public recital at the Sal Mazenod. I apologize if I mispronounced that, but that was in Marseille. He was playing second flute behind his father at this point. His career began, his proper career in music began without full support from his parents, despite the fact that his dad was a flautist, or possibly because of the fact that his dad was a flautist, because both of his parents wanted him to be a doctor. Shortly before the beginning of World War II, he had enrolled in medical school in Marseille, and he studied there for about three years. In 1943, he is drafted into forced labor by the Nazis, uh, but he flees from Marseille to Paris to avoid doing that. 
and he frequently changed lodgings to avoid detection. While in Paris, he auditioned to study flute at the Paris Conservatoire, where he was taught by Gaston Crunel. Uh, I imagine that name probably means something to people that are more familiar with the history of flutes. Uh, he would succeed Crunel as a flute pro- professor at the conservatoire. So this has been his track basically since day one. In 1945, following the liberation of Paris, he was invited by composer Henri Tomasi, uh, then conductor of the Orchestre Nationale de France, to perform the flute concerto by Jacques Hubert live on French national radio. This la- this performance launched his career overnight. Uh, his first commercial recording was in 1946 for Boite de Musique label in Montparnasse, Paris. Or Paris. Uh, he collected a lot of obscure sheet music for flute, recognizing that it might so- support a long solo career. So the thing is, before this point, flute wasn't really treated like a solo instrument. It wasn't something that was supposed to be a main focus. It was always a support. Part of an ensemble. Exactly. Uh, he spent a lot of time trying to recollect works from the Baroque period in order to support this. June 7th, 1947, he marries Francois Bacurius, uh, B-A-Q-U-E-R-Y-R-I-S-S-E. Wow, that's a handle. Um, they would have two children. Uh, that same year, he embarked on a series of performances in Switzerland, Austria, Italy, Spain, and the Netherlands, regularly accompanied by pianist harpsichordist Robert Veyron Lecoy. Um, in 1948, basically by chance, he, ap- he acquired the only solid gold flute made in 1869 by French craftsman Louis Lot, making Rampal the first internationally renowned man with a golden flute, which I want to see a movie about him acquiring this flute because this has like a weird fairy tale quality to it. But the antique dealer that sold it to Rumpal had apparently been considering melting it down for just the gold. Um, he played with his flute for 11 years until he was presented with a 14 karat gold flute made after the same lot pattern in the U.S. by the William S. Haynes Flute Company of Boston. He recorded with the original 1869 flute one final time in London before consigning it to the safety of a bank vault in France. In 1949, Rumpal and Veron Lacroix hired the Salle Gaveau in Paris to perform a recital program made up solely of chamber music for flute, and it was one of the first flute piano recitals the city had seen. This would end up causing a sensation, and those two would play together regularly throughout the 50s on radio and give concerts throughout Europe. He never stops playing. At some point, he stops conducting, or he starts focusing more on conducting. I can't go through all of the individual performances, um, but just to rattle off a couple, in 1952, he founded the Ensemble Baroque de Paris, which would remain together for over three decades. His first international tour came in 1953, and he ended up island hopping throughout Indonesia. Um, 1954 gave us his first concerts in Eastern Europe and Canada. And on Valentine's Day in 1958, he made his U.S. debut in Washington, D.C. He was forced to retire, or sorry, Veron LaCroix was forced to retire in the early 80s due to health problems, but those two had played together for 35 years. So one of the things about Ron Paul is once you started playing with Ron Paul, it seemed like you would play with him for a good chunk of your life. On In May of the year 2000, at age 78, Jean-Pierre Ron Paul would die of heart failure. Um, he is survived by his two children. This guy lived a long, long life, and, well, he didn't die at that olden age, but he did a lot, and he was consistently performing, and he was the solo flute player for a good half of the 20th century. I can't name another. But that brings us to The Muppet Show, episode 510, featuring guest star Jean-Pierre Rampal. It was produced between May 12th and May 15th of 1980. It would premiere in the UK November 30th of the same year, and it would come stateside of January 17th, or it would come stateside January 17th of 1981. We get to our cold open. Pops greets Jean-Pierre at the stage door and tells him that his instruments are ready. And Jean-Pierre, with like this thick, thick accent, says, but I don't play the fruit, I play the flute. At which point, the, jingin, the singing flute belts out a line of, yes, we have no bananas, which, to their credit, is true. There was not a single banana in that frame. I wanted Pop to peel open a banana and start eating it. He's not Link. Um, as, soon, as soon as he they start singing, yes, we have no bananas, I want it pops to be like eating a banana. They did that for the Banana Boat song with a Link in the background. It's true. Uh, that was such a good bit, though. 
So we go to our Muppet Show opening, and this raised questions for me, actually. When we come to Gonzo's trumpet solo, he plays a few notes of Great Day and says, eat your heart out, Gillespie, which, as you know, my co-host Chad, Mm -hmm. um, Dizzy Gillespie was a guest star on an earlier episode, and... Mm -hmm. Swing low, sweet Cadillac. That, exactly. Dizzy Gillespie also famously stabbed Cab Calloway after a spat. So I'm wondering if there was salt or like backstage drama between Dizzy and Gonzo. And if so, did Dizzy pull a knife on Gonzo or was Cab special? We may never know. Remember his cleavage? That's good stuff. (laughs) That was such a weird episode. (laughs) (laughs) Um, we, We get to our opening number, which I loved. Yeah. I just like... Just flat out loved. We uh, Kermit declares that the Muppet Show has been named number one show hosted by frogs, and then brings us to our opening number, which features Janice on main vocals. Which I don't think we had that on. Um, a little help from my little friends. Help, yeah, with a little help from my friends. But generally, it's it's not her. It's usually going to be Doctor Teeth or Floyd or Floyd. Um, but Janice and the Electric Mayhem sing Rock and Robin. singing his song all the little birds on jaybird street love to hear the robin go tweet 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 rockin robin uh which was written by jimmy thomas it's been covered and performed a lot uh most people probably know the jackson five uh version but i think chuck berry's version was pretty popular too wasn't it it's fun. It's a lot of fun. The Robin and some birds are joined by Dr. Teeth on the tambourine, lips on trumpet, and then Animals Oot and Floyd are there. And I will say that Animals Tweet Tweet at the end was way more satisfying than it should have been, but I loved it. No, this is a, this is a good number. It's been a, I think it's been a little while since we've had a full Electric Mayhem number. Why couldn't the Electric Mayhem have been the punks? I guess I was just... confused by that too, actually. They're not very punk, though. They can do punk. I don't know. Like, very high on the list of Funkadelic songs. For some reason, Electric Mayhem has never covered anything by Funkadelic or Parliament, to my knowledge. But off of uh, One Nation Under a Groove, there's a song called Who Says a Rock Band Can't Play Funk. And that is the perfect song for Electric Mayhem to cover from Funkadelic. I don't know if they could be punks. We go backstage and Miss Piggy's back there and she's a little upset. She refuses to perform with Bo, which that's not very nice to Bo. Bo tries hard. She just doesn't want to go on because he's playing the harmonica. She doesn't want to do a duet with a harmonica. I just want, I want her to say that on a Stevie Wonder episode. Piggy's getting busted with her French again, too. Oh, this is, and the setup for this is immaculate. I love Kermit. He does things like this. Kermit totally knows, right? Oh, he absolutely knows. He knows exactly what he's doing. That she doesn't Uh, speak French. Yeah. Because they, they covered that on pre- previous episodes, but yeah, true. she also, she won't let it go because she would like to be perceived as cultured and refined. But I she love agrees. the way she says coupe de, gris, coupe de grace. <laughs> I love how she says coupe de grace and Kermit's just like, what was that? Huh? What was that? <laughs> That's the moment that you know, if you, if you didn't know before, that is the moment that you absolutely know. The idea that an art of my stature would sing with a mouth organ playing stagehand. It is the Coupe de Grace. Big pardon? Coupe de Grace? Mm-hmm. It is French. Oh. Oh, sometimes it is wearying being the only person around here with culture and refinement. N'est-ce pas? The Kermit knows. I do like, though, when Piggy goes, uh, what do you got? He's like, we have a flautist. She's like, is he any good? He's like, he's the best. She's like, great. Get the, get the flute player out there. It's very matter of fact about it. She doesn't even bother to ask his name. Just, just get the flute player out there. It's weird. As you say that, I almost feel like we should have seen Sam the Eagle on this. Mm, that would have been good. We haven't seen Sam in a while. 
we haven't, but this is like a perfect Sam episode too. It's got culture. Yeah. But we, we go on stage and Rolf is there to play the piano for Jean-Pierre and Piggy's performance of Lo, Hear the Gentle Lark, which was a Shakespeare poem uh, put to music. Neither Piggy nor Jean-Pierre are particularly excited about sharing the stage since they usually stay alone or play alone. Uh, yeah. But there's just Frank. Yep. Frank. Frank. We're going to say this. I don't know how many more times for the rest of the, the Muppet Show series, but in this section, playing exasperated and try too hard piggy. There's a, and you can probably support this. I've heard that it takes a very intelligent actor to play a very stupid person because you've got to say the wrong thing with the right timing. And what Frank is doing in this section with Miss Piggy is just, it reinforces that he's the best. The At the end, we have the line from Statler and Waldorf that say, one more chorus would have killed the pig. Encore, encore. Yeah. <laughs> just great. Yeah. Just great. We, we go straight from there to an amazing bear on patrol. Patrol bear comes in arresting the car ZZXKL for double parking. The car keeps honking at them and the patrol bear and the chief can't understand it. And Gonzo comes in to interpret. And it's a who's on first bit, but it's just the second that Gonzo puts the clamps over Fozzie's nose. Poor Fozzie. Poor Fozzie, but also Gonzo playing the straight man and also being the absolute asshole in this context is just amazing. Got a good whoosh in there. <laughs> That's all um, I care about. I just want a good whoosh. Of course. Yeah, I I thought this was great. This is like possibly behind the octopus. This is probably one of my favorite bears on patrol that I've seen. Yeah, it's really funny. We go backstage again and Kermit tells Miss Piggy that he suggested to Jean-Pierre that they could speak French together in the interest of cultural refinement. I love Kermit. I love Kermit. <laughs> I love Kermit planting traps for Piggy in particular, <laughs> because on some level, Piggy knows what he's doing, but she can't let him know that he knows because that's also tantamount to admitting that she doesn't know what she's doing. And it's so a lot good. of mind games. Miss Piggy, after singing with which, to be fair, she was training at the end. After singing with Jean Pierre, claims that she has laryngitis, and her vocal coach instructed her not to speak French. It's kind of like a kid saying they're allergic to broccoli, which, you know, might be an actual allergy, but also some kids just don't like broccoli. I didn't. But I didn't either. Jean-Pierre greets her and proceeds to speak French. And Kermit asks what she says, or Kermit asks Piggy what Jean-Pierre said, but she says that she can speak French, but not hear it. (laughs) At which point Kermit says, oh, sort of laryngitis of the ear. Yeah. You know, what's funny is I, I, I speak a little bit of Italian. But I have a hard time hearing it, like understanding it when it's spoken to me. Well, you're dealing with different speeds and dialects. Yeah, if you're getting it because people, are, people, are, when there's pe- people are talking so fast, that's why I'm not, I'm not fluent by any means, you know. So like, someone starts talking at me, and and I, I can't find any of the words. So I've known, like, I kind of get it in third generation kids, and like from the same family, and some of them are much better at speaking, and some of them are much better at hearing. Yeah, so I, I don't think she's too out of line there with her laryngitis of the ear i mean she's lying but yeah she's absolutely out of line but like to your point though there is actual real world real world precedent for that kind of dynamic miss piggy excuses herself and says hasta la vista which schwarzenegger wasn't a thing yet so actually wait when did the first terminator come out 84 okay yeah so it wasn't really a thing yet uh but jean pierre to his credit calls her a great artist uh but he's looking for the right english phrase which it turns out is con artist. I don't know if I call her a con artist. She's not, not a con artist. Like she's not the biggest con artist on the show. No, but given how many times she tries to set Kermit up and all. Damn, other, yeah, it's so, so we get, I really like this episode. I, this is my favorite moment of the week. It's so good. It's so very, very, this is my favorite moment of the whole week. There is a part of me that is deeply uncomfortable with the fact that Marvin Suggs is becoming one of my favorite Muppets. (laughs) So we go to Veterinarian's Hospital and we see Marvin Suggs. Kind of. Kind of. 
Um, but we see Marvin Suggs on the operating table, uh, and he uses the medical equipment to prompt a conga. And Dr. Bob, Nurse Janice, and Nurse Piggy join in, followed by a number of patients, including a rabbit, a droop, cat gut, Doris, and a lot of whatnots. And basically, Chad, I've seen this, so I'm going to be surprised if you haven't seen this. Marvin Sugg starts the sketch playing Bob Fosse and all that jazz right. and then goes like full Lin-Manuel Miranda, which is a, com- a comparison that we keep drawing to Marvin Suggs, but it's okay. Also, one of the other notes that I put for this is Peter's going to have a field day with his particular sketch because all of those animals look like they were tested on. I don't think they were tested on. They're patients at the hospital. Sure. They're patients at the hospital. I love this. It comes out of nowhere. It's so good. It's so absurd that it's happening there's no setup to it really it's just marvin is laying in the hospital bed and all of a sudden there's a conga line and there's no explanation to it there's no reason for it it's freaking fantastic i laughed i laughed harder at this than i did at anything else in these two episodes and all it is is a bunch of puppets doing a conga line part of that is informed by how familiar we are with marvin suggs and what we've seen of marvin before this point um and maybe that also lends an additional light to all of the injured animals that are coming in but (laughs) <laughs> like I, I wonder if this would have hit me as hard if I didn't have as firm a concept of Marvin Suggs like if this was the first Muppet sketch that I saw I would probably just think that it was alright but it is definitely improved by just being familiar with Marvin Suggs with Suggs yes but it's also just it's a better sketch because it's coming in season 5 mm-hmm. does that make sense it does like, like there's just something it's it's funny in context funnier Mm -hmm. in context not just of the episode itself because it has nothing to do with the episode itself which is what makes it funny in the first place Mm -hmm. in the context of the entire show um it's just it's a fun surprise we go to our uk spot where a bunch of whatnots are taking part in a french sidewalk cafe sketch where we've got a couple of lovers sweet talking each other while the garçon plays la scene on an accordion uh which this is sort of like the stereotypical city of i i don't know that it is a city of canals but this is that sort of scene um and the dancing couple are joined by mrs appleby the french poodle the afghan hound two penguins and a crocodile um and even the the sidewalk tree dances along but the sketch ends when a whatnot hits the garçon over the head with a glass bottle and i love that this is the uk spot specifically because i know that there's long-standing beef between the uk and france i don't know if that's still the case but for a long time there was And so much of it was just, we don't need this French crap. We go backstage to Jean-Pierre's dressing room where the Robin joins him and asks. Not Robin. Sorry, the Robin. No, you said that. I'm just pointing out. Not not Robin itself, but just a Robin. The bird Robin, uh, not the Batman Robin or the frog Robin, asks if Jean-Pierre is going to rehearse. And she says that she'd like to stick around and listen. And she also goes on to say that birds love flute music. And this... Uh, Jean-Pierre plays a song called The Little Shepherd, which is from a 1908 piano suite by Claude Debussy. There's not a lot to say about this, but it's very pretty. It sounds like birds. It does, but it's also... I don't have the vocabulary to, to properly address the way that he plays, but I could chill and just listen to Jean-Pierre playing flute which is not something that I probably would have said before this episode started. The, the <laughs> yeah. Like the flute is not something that I would go to probably along with a lot of other people at the time as a solo instrument that I would typically listen to. Contrary to Miss Piggy, I would probably do that with a harmonica before I did it with a flute, but I would enjoy just hearing Jean-Pierre play. It is, it's a very pleasant sound. It is. It wasn't a hundred percent for me. I wasn't as enamored with it. I, I was, I, I thought it was fine. But uh, no, he's amazing. Don't get me wrong. He's amazing. It's just not for me. Hmm. But yeah, he, he does a good job of, of playing a piece of music that it, it that is um, evocative of birds. Mm-hmm. It feels like, it, you know, it, it's not about birds, but if it was a song about birds, it wouldn't surprise you that it was a song about birds. We go to Muppet Labs where Bunsen shows us an electric sledgehammer. With That's which, only going to go well, right? It's the best kind of percussive maintenance. But it's only going to go well. He he wants to use it to drive a nail into a wooden block, and Beaker tries to start it up. But the thing is, the way that this thing is set up, it does it does sort of look like that uh, that springy two pronged hammer that you you might have had as a toy as a kid. Um, and it ends up just going straight into the side of Beaker's head, which 
everyone could have seen coming, but it just keeps doing it repeatedly. Yeah. And Bunsen, just wonderful Bunsen, thinks that Beaker's broken it and seems to be upset about it. I know. It. And I'm just like, oh, this is an abusive relationship. He's going bl- to blame Beaker for breaking it? Right. Beaker didn't do anything. Asshole. The hammer swings to the other side, and I love any Muppet Labs in which Bunsen Honeydew gets his comeuppance. At least a little bit. Yeah. But it starts banging Bunsen's finger against the nail, which is doing what it was designed to do, just, you know, with a couple of extra steps. What an asshole. Yeah, he's a massive asshole, and he's, he's so mean to Beaker. But we go to the Muppet News Flash, where the newsman announces, in a, a segue from the last scene, because we need continuity, that the electric sledgehammer has escaped. But you don't need to panic, since it only attacks really wimpy nerds. And we can all see exactly where this is going. But it makes me sad to see the Muppet Newsman being self-effacing in this way, <laughs> even if he didn't mean to be. We go backstage, and the newsman complains that there's too much violence on newscasts, which, if anyone would know, it's it's probably him. Kermit gets everyone ready for the Pied Piper sequence, which is supposed to be the finale, and Scooter comes on to inform him that the rats have filed an official protest, because it doesn't paint them in a good light. They don't refuse to go on, but which at which Kermit's like, cool, let's just go, but Kermit or Scooter tries to inform him that they might have changed the story a little bit. Which brings us to the final number, which I was not remote. Where's the content before. warning for the depiction of rats? That's what I was wondering. Like, I was like, is that, am I reading into this too much or like? No. They were just this side of calling the rats uppity, but it's just like, it's interesting. <laughs> um, the final number puts Jean-Pierre in the role of the Pied Piper of Hamlin, but they've reversed the rats or the roles of the rats and the children. And so... I'm just going to say, before we go too far into this, I lost my shit for a number of reasons, not the least of which is some of the baby Muppets are actually able to enunciate, which means they're growing. And I don't know how I feel about that. He ends up playing a flute version of Ease On Down the Road from The Wiz. Yeah. Written by Charlie Smalls for The Wiz in 1975. And Chad, we've established this before. I still haven't seen The Wizard of Oz. But you've seen The Wiz a lot. I've seen The Wiz a lot. I've seen a good chunk of The Wiz in Russian. I have read <laughs> The Wizard of Oz. I was not expecting the like premier French flute soloist to play the song to which Diana Ross used to do cartwheels while wearing high heels. And that still impresses me to this day. But it's great because it's baby Muppets singing it. Yeah, that's it complicates it. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote I wrote down this is Nick as fuck. Is it? I feel uncomfortable with that, but that's that is what it is. It, it is and it is. It, it's it's like something you love mixed with something that you fear. Yeah, that tracks. All rolled into one and it made me think of you. I was like I was like, <laughs> oh, like it's cool that they're doing the whiz, but it's got it's got the little scrunchy little baby Muppet doing it. But they're also like, they're not at that point where they're doing that weird like, goo goo gaga stuff. They're enunciating. They're they're having thoughts. There's probably some degree of self awareness there, and maybe that means eventually they'll turn into things that are less frightening. But also, there's this weird sort of like, ah uh, ah, am I upset about this? Like it just left me confused. This was great. It was. It was. Yeah. I and I loved John like. I really love Jean-Pierre as a guest. He wasn't he wasn't not charismatic. He was plenty charismatic in his own way. For a solo mus- musician, he did really well. He was not uncomfortable. He was very charismatic. And I like to hear him play as well. I thought he was a very solid... It feels kind of out of left field, but it was a very solid choice for the show. Next time, 50 Ways to Love Your Lever. Ooh, so next time we got a good one. We got episode 511 with the one, the only Paul Simon. And then episode 512 with singer-songwriter Melissa Manchester. Paul Simon was good. It's real good. It's all Paul Simon music wall-to-wall. At Lunatic Daring online, lunaticdaring.com. And, you know, 
if you if you if you if you got a minute, go on your favorite podcasting app or wherever you're listening to this and give us a little review and a rating. Helps out a lot. Um, but uh, Paul Simon, Melissa Manchester, next time. Uh, until then, I'm Chad. I'm Nick. And uh, thank you for listening. A Feat of Lunatic Daring is written and produced by Chad J. Shonk and hosted by Chad J. Shonk and Nicholas Jackson. Music by Seth Podolitz. And a proud production of Antithesis Audio. Jean-Pierre has recorded an album of Frank Sinatra's hits on the flute. What's it called? I did it sideways. Oh! <laughs>